1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Ricardo Lopez Pedreros about the book, The Middle Classes in Latin America, Subjectivities, Practices, and Genealogies. Professor Lopez Pedreros is one of three editors of this volume along with Mario Barbosa Cruz and Claudia Stern. Professor Lopez Pedreros is Professor of History at Western Washington University. Ricardo, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: So, Ricardo, there are crucial ideas in this book, um, both about how Latin America's middle classes have shaped the region's history and also about sort of how we study them, about how scholars can study these groups when it seems like there are really quite a few intellectual and political obstacles uh, to doing so. It's kind of a thorny topic, and your book makes a really powerful case for rethinking it. But some listeners might actually be thinking about this topic for the first time. So it's more of a thinking than a rethinking. And outsiders' representations of Latin America and its people, past and present, I found tend to really emphasize most often poverty, and then, second, most often, fantastic wealth. So I'm wondering if you could start by giving us some preliminary descriptions or examples just so that we can begin to build a more multi-layered image of social class in the region.
2: All right, absolutely. Yes, um thank you again. That's indeed you know, a um, a difficult, difficult question because one of the things that we try to do with, you know, with the book is of course, you know, to locate the formation of the middle classes in the histories or you know the, the yeah, the histories of uh, of Latin America and not necessarily Latin American histories, And that is, you know, a reason for that, that we can talk about, you know, later. So what we do here is try to see then, you know, from the 19th century to the present, that particular, you know, formation. So in terms of, you know, the description, we do emphasize as a collective effort here, we do emphasize on the one hand, you know, the, the, the question of the middle class as a as a concept or even as a discourse, so that would actually you know be you know one aspect. And for the 19th century, in that you know, regard you know the uh, the notion the concept of you know uh, middle class or middle classness was central to the consolidation of liberalism and you know republicanism, right? So that's you know one part of the 19th century in terms of you know how important. In this particular you know, case, the the notion of uh, the middle uh, the middle class, but we also try to, you know, do it let's say in an empirical, you know, way more as a you know as a practice. And then we move from the nineteenth century to you know the twentieth century. And we do it then, you know, through a um let's say some structural changes that you know Latin America as a region connected to other parts of the world, you know, experience. Just to take one example, the um expansion of, you know, the service sector since, you know, they say 1930s, 1940s. That's a common um, uh, reality for most countries in Latin America. So there are different <clears throat> contributions in the volume that shows how that expansion of the service sector, most specifically, you know, office work shaped, you know, the formation of, you know, the concept middle class, but also the reality of certain historical actors as part of, you know, the middle classes. Then during the second half of the 20th century, we also see them as a concept and as a practice, um, the consolidation of neoliberal um, societies, broadly understood, that, you know, there is a shift um, in which what you know the middle class was you know supposed to be that is connected more to the ideas of being entrepreneurial you know society. So I'm giving this brief a uh, um, description of the 19th to you know the 20th century to see the you know shifting meanings and practices of what you know being middle class you know mean because one of the main efforts with these volumes to historicize those realities and not take this you know notion of middle class as a transhistorical reality that is always you know the same um, but rather you know changes over time. At first glance they could actually you know, be seen as well that's actually you know quite you know quite obvious. But what is interesting of that what we try to you know see is that then when we locate the uh, formation of the middle class at the center of all of these you know histories, these histories look differently. And we are not just making, you know, the case that then, you know, now Latin America is a completely different, you know, region because we studied, you know, the middle classes. The effort is to connect, historiographically speaking, you know, to connect what we may call middle class studies with other historiographical fields, because that's one of the main problems we have with, you know, middle class studies, that it actually studies the middle class in relation to the middle classes and not in relation to, larger historical problematization. So that's indeed, you know, the effort that we do in the, in the volume.
1: So you mentioned that this edited volume is a collective effort, and um, I want listeners to know that uh, there are 23 chapters in addition to pieces by some um, other historians uh, to sort of bookend um, this book. And like many edited volumes, this began as a conference. So could you tell us a bit about what motivated you and the other editors to organize that conference, and what surprises emerged from that conversation that happened in 2019?
2: Well, that was uh, that was actually you know before the pandemic, right? So, uh, but one one of the you know interesting what, one of our efforts was that a uh, um there was a tendency, still you know a, a tendency uh, in which you know those who are interested in you know, uh, uh, history size. you know, doing research about, you know, the middle classes in Latin America are supposedly located outside Latin America, that the topic is of, you know, interest for those scholars who are actually, you know, outside Latin America. But that's not entirely true. I mean, it's just, you know, I would say for the last, you know, century or so, there have been some transnational discussions about, you know, the middle classes and as I said in the introduction, perhaps that's one of the most discussed topics um, since World War II. So one of the efforts that, you know, we, we, we tried to do with my two co-editors was, all right, if this is, a, historically speaking, has been a transnational experience, let's try to, you know, the analysis, the historical analysis of that transnational experience for us was, well, you also has to, you know, reflect that reality so we did organize this uh, conference in in mexico um city and we wanted to invite people from different places in latin america the united states um and canada so that you know we could actually have a transnational discussion uh, about that and the other part was also to acknowledge recent uh, um uh, uh, interpretations coming from Latin America that, could, that needs to be, you know, read and discussed in, let's say, the global North, because that's, you know, sometimes you know those dialogues do happen, but they don't actually, you know, uh, relate to each other. That what I mean is, and what I mean is, like, you know, a, we have a tendency, you know, in the North to ignore what is happening in the South in terms of knowledge production. So that was indeed, you know, an effort to combine, you know, those, nobody saying then it's only about, you know, Latin America, or the production of knowledge coming from Latin America, but making it, a, you know, a transnational, you know, dialogue. After the conference, we did, you know, reach out to some scholars to complement this effort that, you know, we partially, you know, did during the conference, but we were not completely satisfied. So we then, you know, reach out to a couple of uh, um, uh, scholars to make this transnational dialogue a, um, a reality.
1: So, um, you've talked a little bit about this already, but this is a book that really resists creating a singular definition of the middle class or of the middle classes. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about why a singular definition is unhelpful, maybe by telling us why a definition that works in one context wouldn't work at all in another context, drawing from the book's cases.
2: Yeah, this is this is a key part, and I think this is one of the things we really want to, you know, um, achieve with, you know, the book. So the book does speak of dialogues because, you know, we, we try to be more, uh, create a dialogue rather than, you know, we're making something entirely new, precisely because of the reason that I just said. It's just more of a transnational dialogue. But the book does uh, take a different route because for the middle class studies, and there are some reasons as to why this happens, um, we have the tendency to see the middle classes as problematic because we assume they do not have a very specific sociological location in society. So we work on the assumption that the middle classes, as some of the, you know, the uh, scholars said, that is a gray zone of, you know, the social structure. We don't know what we're talking about. It's really, you know, fussy, the meanings, the practices. And, and, and if you think for a moment, the logic of that argument is, OK, we all agree that there are, you know, then, you know three classes. And if the middle classes are so fussy in terms of what, where they belong, almost by definition, one could actually say, well, that also happens to the elites. And, you know, the working classes, because if the, you know, the middle class are so fuzzy, then where well, you would like be able to locate them. So instead of just trying to come up with a transhistorical historical definition of, you know, the middle classes, that then we could apply to different historical moments and say, well, you know, yes, that, you know, this is a middle class. This is not a middle class. What we can actually, you know, do is bring the question of what it meant to be middle class To different historical moments this is not a claim to let's say you know a a liberal definition of you know agency there are you know different elements that we emphasize you know as a a product of how different authors see the formation of the middle classes so we talk about structural conditions we talk about you know discursive you know uh, uh, development let's say uh, we also talk about you know agency Right, so we combine these three. What we the argument we make is that we don't make we don't see any of these aspects as more important than you know the others. So we integrate you know these. So historically speaking, this you know this uh, uh, frame allows them to historicize the formation of you know the middle classes. So if, for example, just to give a couple of examples here, during the first half of the 20th century. We see the expansion of the service sector. We also see, you know, the process of industrialization throughout Latin America. Then we see simultaneously the emergence of, you know, racialized discourses. One of the a very important one, the notion of, you know, mestizaje. So in some cases, the notion of mestizaje and some of the authors here, like Mara Viveros, shows is how this notion of Russian, racial harmony, the association of mestizaje with, you know, racial harmony, combine a, a definition of social harmony simultaneously connected to a definition of middle class so that is a structural condition in that sense that is to say industrialization the growth of the service sector there are some discourses here the ones that I just mentioned and then the multiplicity or the multiple ways in which you know different historical actors mobilize some of these discourses in order to consider themselves part of you know, the middle class. So here what we're going to see is the consolidation of a dominant definition of middle class connected to the notion of, you know, mestizaje or other case the case of Brazil, for example, with you know, Bárbara Weinstein shows how that in the case of Brazil there was another you know discourse, the notion of you know the regionalization of race, the case of you know São Paulo, and how the notion of middle class was indeed associated with whiteness. You know that the you, know, you know, the notion of whiteness were in you know, contradiction with each other. There are multiple uh, uh, racialized discourses, but a similar process happens with the notion of middle class. There were multiple ways of how those discourses are mediating the structural conditions, the expansion of the service sector, the expansion of a, um, the process of industrialization. And then I could actually, you know, give other examples about, you know, well, how things, you know, drastically changed the moment of the radicalization of the second half of the 20th century, particularly in the 1960s, and how the notion of middle class, you know, begin to get uh, uh, more of a, let's say, more radical meanings of what it meant, you know, to be part of the middle classes. But with this framework that combined, let's put it simply, structure, agency, discourses, together, without making a claim that one thing is more important than the other, but they actually, you know, we have to work together, then we are able to historicize what it means to be a, a middle class and the changes of what it means to be, you know, a, a, a middle class. I
1: would love to hear some more about um, something that you that comes up in the book of class boundaries and how those boundaries get tested or enforced or how they actually shift over time. Um, could you give us some examples of maybe what we could call the borderlands of class, either between mm-hmm. middle and popular classes or middle classes and the elites?
2: Right. So this is, you know, it's an, a, it, that part is, a, you know, an important, you know, point, Rachel, because, a, um, you know, our effort, you know, here is, when, you know the, the, the proposal and this is indeed a collective effort and I want to emphasize that part because you know when, when you do a collective effort with multiple authors, you know that allows you to make certain arguments that you wouldn't be able to do. otherwise, I just want to make Dino you know, the claim that collective work is indeed important. And one of the Dino you know, efforts is that we propose the notion of middle class, the concept of you know, middle class as a meaningful category to understand power domination and, you know, the hierarchization of societies in Latin America. That is, I would call this a, 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 a universal, you know, question that is not only limited to the question of Latin America, but it goes, you know, beyond. So then what we, you know, what we say is like, okay, so if that is indeed the case, what the, the study of the middle class allow us to see how some you know, class boundaries get followed with your language that I really like like that. Like you know how it gets you know tested, right? How the you know, different historical actors respond um, to that. Well and, and in this case that you know I I, I will use my own you know, research that is also you know, featured in you know one of the chapters here to talk about that particular you know boundaries between popular groups. Middle classes and also a, um, a, um, elites. So, you know, the case I offer here is, is, you know, the radicalization of some, you know, professionals in the 1960s and 1970s as part of, you know, Cold War, you know, a, uh, uh, politics. And as part of that rad- radicalization, some middle class professional women and men are going to make the claim to represent popular groups. But in that particular context, what we now see is, you know, who is the proper revolutionary subject in that particular discussion. What then, you know, see is who the proletarian, the proper proletarian, would actually, you know, be in relation to some elites or imagine elites or imagine oligarchies. So in this particular case, the oligarchies with the, and the elements of gender would be, you know, crucial. The oligarchies. According to the discourse being, you know, put forward by this, you know, radicalized, you know, professional part of a petit bourgeoisie, following the language of, you know, the moment, would be, you know, feminine force against, you know, the democratization of, you know, society. So they are created a boundary of, you know, belonging to the oligarchies would actually, you know, mean the feminization of certain class belonging. Simultaneously, this petit uh, Bourgeois men and women are going to see the uh, the the, the prop and proletarian as the source of masculinization. So I'm offering these examples, and I cannot go into too much, you know, into more detail. But I'm offering these examples just to see how certain boundaries are imagined through questions of, you know, gender. Other examples are actually imagined, you know, question of, you know, race, in order to imagine a hierarchization of, the you know, societies. But to go back to my earlier point, it's not just here, you know, claim to whatever, you know, people say uh, about the middle class, then it becomes the reality of middle class. No, because what we actually see here, some, you know, two structural conditions at work. On the one hand, it's the, you know, the, the developmental programs that create material opportunities for some of these, you know, professionals to represent the developmental state. There were some, you know, discourses related to, you know, development that locate, you know, democracy um, as representation of, you know, middle class and simultaneously other, you know, structural conditions, which was in radicalization, the political radicalization of, you know, the, 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 uh, of society, of the, you know, hope of, you know, create a, a revolution. So that's going to actually put some limits, create some discourses through which, All of these historical actors are going to, you know, try to create all of these hierarchized, you know, societies through ideas of race, through ideas of, you know, gender. So they create all of these, you know, uh, boundaries in which they try to locate, you know, themselves.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So you mentioned um, that in the many contributions in this book, uh, that some of the authors come from disciplines other than, than history. Um, and, I would love to hear more about what you and the, the all the contributors really learned from each other's different approaches and different methodologies, different sources um, in studying these different cases um, and different understandings of the middle class.
2: Um, given, given our you know, interest to understand you know the middle classes as a concept, or as a discourse, as a structural condition, as a you know product of you know, subjectivity or as a genealogy, the interdisciplinarity really help us, you know, flesh out all of these aspects. So, you know, a, um, as historians, of course, we, you know, what we call, you know, historical context is always, you know, there, right? So we, you know, we push, in really hard to see, okay, what's the specificity for that, you know, historical context? And in some cases, well, well you know, let's talk about the structural, you know, conditions. And then I would say, you know, and, and, and this was, again, you know, we integrate all of these aspects. But then the other aspect is, you know, ethnographic work. That is, there several contributions who do very specific, you know, let's say, problematization of, you know, ethnographic work. Um, that is, okay, so let's think about how you have a conversation about how people remember the, quote unquote, middle class past. Right. That, you know, that is the, uh, some cases in which we actually, you know, see how people remember are defined by questions of, you know, class, so structural conditions that, you know, ethnographic ethnographic work or, you know, a um, history that also, you know, sociological, you know, um, studies there that actually break up, you know, the, the question how we measure then a um, uh, uh, the, yeah, how you measure who belongs to you know the middle you know, the middle classes, um, as well. So the interdisciplinarity allows us to make this you know integrated argument about how middle classes get how to get materialized again the structural conditions, agency, discourses, um, subjectivities, genealogies, and what I mean by you know, genealogies is that all of these you know how the, all of these ideas about Middle class, let's say from the early, you know, 20th century, or even you know, earlier, they don't necessarily, you know, dis- disappear. They get, you know, reconfigured, mobilized in later periods for different, you know, purposes. So let's say, the modernization theory of the 1950s would indeed, you know, mobilize what happened earlier in terms of the role assigned to the middle classes in the service sector or the association between office work and um, you know, the formation of a middle class to make them the claim in the 1950s and 1960s of the, you know, the middle class as the representation of you know, democracy. But the interdisciplinarity allow us to make that you know, uh, 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 integral um, argument so that we keep in mind you know, the historical process, but we also emphasize you know, the ethnographic part to see how people you know, thought themselves as part of, you know, um, of a class even if in, in most cases you would actually you know, see the contestation of that you know, boundary. The case, for example, of Mario Barbosa and he, uh, his piece on you know, early Mexico is a very interesting one because what is at stake is precisely how those um, boundaries get you know, um, uh, tested so that it, it is an ethnographic work of how different documents in the bureaucracy of the uh, Mexican state is indeed defining who belongs to, you know, the middle class. But simultaneously, that is the effort of how that, you know, process in reality creates some burdens because some people needed to actually keep up with some of the definitions of what middle class, you know, was. So we actually see all of these two processes. But again, it's just because we offer an interdisciplinary approach to the formation of the middle classes in the 19th and 20th century.
1: Would you speak to the way that the class background and class position actually of academics themselves shapes scholarship on the middle classes, and and maybe say something too about how this could work differently in the different countries where people are are writing about the middle classes in Latin America?
2: Oh, Reggie, that is indeed a very important question, one that I'm you know I'm dealing with at, at you know now for a, a different piece, but I you know. Okay, I would say, you know, maybe two or three things. The first one is, uh, one of the things is important for us to see is uh, why do we think, we mean it, you know, scholars, what do we think we haven't studied the middle classes, which I don't think that's necessarily, you know, the case. We have, you know, uh, we have a lot of thick books proving the, uh, the, uh, the uh, not existent, the inexistence of you know, the middle classes. So scholars from the academia have made a political effort, particularly in the case of you know, Latin America. And all of these arguments are usually in comparative perspective. So what scholars have done is to write thick books in order to demonstrate the non-existence of the middle classes. So the middle classes has become, through all of these studies, a non-topic. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it hasn't been studied. It has been studied in order to prove it's inexistent in the case of Latin America. Because in that effort, two things happen. On the one hand, is that then you know, Latin America becomes, if 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 we actually see that there is a middle class, then we have to come to terms with the idea that, well, one of the most important ideas that, you know, once you create a middle class society, you have, quote, unquote, a more democratic society than divided by, you know, two two classes. So we have to come to terms with, are we going to then say that, you know, now, or historically, you know, uh, uh, Latin America has been, you know, democratic? Of course, you know, that becomes, you know, a... um, you know, the question, um, and the other then, you know, is the question of the position, position, positionality of scholars themselves. By denying, by saying that it does not exist, is a way, I would argue, uh, and of course, I don't make that, you know, argument in the introduction to the book, but it's something that I'm, you know, writing right now, is that by denying the existence of, you know, the middle classes, right? Is a way to, you know, protect class privilege from those who are writing about, you know, the topic. And of course, we, we you know, we we would actually have to see how that indeed, you know, uh, you know, happened. Because of course, you know, the, the, what is what is that in any other, you know, better way to protect one's privilege by saying we don't have to talk about it? So, and of course, I'm making an assumption here that most scholars are, you know, of a middle class background. And we could actually make, you know, that case. We could actually, you know, historically speaking, there's research to show that that is indeed the case. But that would actually, you know, produce uh, those two, that, you know, the, 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 the positionality and the, and the class background shape, how, you know, the middle classes have been historicized. And the third aspect would actually be that, that you know, profound, Eurocentric views of what the middle class is all about. That is one of the main reasons why we think that the middle class, historically speaking, hasn't existed as a historical reality, as a class, even as empirical reality in Latin America. It's the implicit point of comparison, and the middle class in Latin America always found wanting with that particular you know, definition. So what we do is not just to say, okay, let me show you that the middle classes did indeed exist. Right? because when we actually say then this is as some decolonial thinker would actually argue well yeah there are some parts of middle you know, of latin america society that get closer to you know what they call a colonial matrix of power which is associated with europe but if, you know the, what, what we actually you know try to do here is well if we actually frame the question of you know the formation of middle class as a question of domination that is to say, to understand the multiple forms of you know, uh, uh, domination, then it becomes a universal question. And not just that because it's just Latin America, of course, there are some specificities to the Latin American case, historical specificities, but it becomes a larger theoretical question to understand how domination or multiple forms of domination and hierarchization of society actually work.
1: So your uh, this volume really makes clear that there uh, maybe despite efforts to make this a non-topic that there is clearly a robust and vibrant scholarship um, that's already underway on the middle classes in Latin American history or histories. But I would love to know what are some topics um, or questions in this subfield that you think have not gotten the attention yet that they deserve.
2: I would say you know okay so there are you know different you know um well maybe two or three aspects. The first one, we do, you know, make an effort. They're really good examples to the question of, you know, the racialization of, you know, class and, let's say, the classification of, you know, race. It is indeed, you know, important to, you know, continue working on that, you know, aspect. Again, to engage what I would consider is now a hegemonic way of understanding Latin America, which is from, you know, the colonial Theories, because as I argue in the introduction, and there are several chapters that actually show this uh, in the volume, what is fascinating that despite, or precisely because the colonial you know, theories have made you know, the case to locate Latin America as a very important part of the world to understand you know, power, they have simultaneously reproduced one of the most powerful ideas of, you know, a uh, Western canon that is to say that the middle classes are a reality only for certain societies. And in this case, well, you know, Europe and, you know, the United States, it is a way to create what I would call an imperial difference. So, you know, the colonial theories do reproduce that part. And um, so one what, what of the things in order to challenge that is to see the racialization of class and the classification of, you know, race. Uh, uh, in order to show the, the let's say the contradictions of how this colonial matrix of power materializes. So that would actually you know be you know one aspect. The second aspect is indeed you know the question of um, gender to rethink certain aspects. For example, you know the Cold War. Uh, uh, usually you know we understand the Cold War through the you know the yeah, the dichotomy between revolutions and counter-revolution. The the, the, the example of uh, uh, Claudia's piece here, and if I may I include my work there as well. Once we include the questions of gender, the questions of masculinity, that particular distinction that we think, you know, define, you know, Cold War revolution versus counter-revolution, start being a little bit more, you know shaky in terms of what he meant to be part of the revolution or what he meant to be part of a counter-revolution notions of you know masculinity claims to the right to rule from revolutionary men and men from the conservative you know side so i think we actually have to get more into that particular you know field in order to question what i would you know regard as a very you know dominant de- you know definition of what the cold war was revolution versus a um Uh, uh, revolution. And I would say, you know, the third aspect that, you know, we have to work more on would actually be, it it relates to a a question that you asked earlier, Rachel, is the relationship between middle classes and elites. We have, you know, thus far spent a lot of time to see how this, you know, boundary making has historically happened in relation to, you know, popular groups. But we have to do it with, you know, a... um, with elites and that would actually, you know, bring even more complications to, you know, uh, the picture because you would force us, you know, to think um, to historicize questions of democracy and more specifically to the question of who has the right to rule. We assume that el- the elites make that claim because they are elites, right? Um, and at the same time, well, you know, you think, well, you know, the, the middle classes are also the representation of, you know, democracy. So I would say that this is know a part that we well, we definitely have to you know to do more and if you allow me but perhaps historically speaking we need more you know studies on 19th century there are some we you know feature some of the 19th century um, studies but we also have to you know continue working on that because we assume that the reality of a middle class came from you know europe to you know the america so I imagine studies showing how, not to say that, they, you know, Latin America was the uh, you know, original story of, um, you know, middle class. That's not the point, but just to see the transnational connections and those transnational connections, you know, would actually be, you know, interesting to see uh, for the 19th century because that is, a, you know, let's say a 20th century bias about, you know, the study of the middle classes that, okay, yes, the middle, you know, 20th century is, of course, almost quite obvious that it emerged, you know the a uh, 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 materiality of middle class emerging in the 20th century, but it will be you know interesting to push the uh, um, the argument a little bit and you know see the transnational you know creation um, of this uh, uh, definition middle class again the connection between Europe, the Americas, that is to say Latin America and the United and the United States. There are of course you know some you know good examples um, um, here. You know Susie uh, Porter does make that, you know, particular case of how, you know, Mexico appropriate certain ideas, you know, Europe and redefine what he meant to be, you know, uh, middle class. But I think, you know, more work on that front would be, you know, uh, important.
1: So I'm wondering a little bit about how you bring some of this richness of, of your own work, but also all this other work that you've engaged with so deeply into your teaching, um, when you're teaching maybe surveys or specialized courses about Latin America or about other sort of framings of history, um, how do you bring middle class histories into the limelight?
2: Okay, and, well, <laughs> there's oh, several ways. You know, one I actually I have uh, I teach a class on the world histories of you know uh, the middle classes, and, and so I do 19 uh, to 20th century. But given you know the effort that we do in this in this volume, it's a collective effort to integrate a, uh, um, a the formation of the middle class as a topic to other you know historical problematizations. The way I do it is okay. What is a historical problematization? Let's say you know modernization as a reality. Let's say you know early you know a um a 20th century. So sometimes what I do is you know bring up. Some um, documents, um, there you know, as uh, uh, memories of you know, interviews, oral histories, all documents produced you know, at that particular moment to see the multiple ways of how modernization was experienced, how you know that experience was indeed you know uh, materialized through questions of class, gender, race, age, generation. So that's the way I do it. I you know bring you know some examples. So. In the case of, you know, Colombia, that I—that's the the, uh, the one that I know best. But sometimes I make some, you know, comparison with, you know, Chile or Argentina or um, other places. So I, I bring some um, uh, uh, documents in which they can actually, you know, see the major distinction that was created between those who work in factories and those who work in offices. Uh, you know, the redefinition of labor in process of modernization, urbanization, and that, you know how certain ideas being, you know, about you know, middle-classness is being formed and how at the core of that notion of middle-classness, the creation of a working class identity is also being a, um, uh, uh, materialized so that a student then, you know, see how class is being a, uh, um, uh, made, the other example I, uh, I I do is you know populism, which is central to a, um, a, um, the histories of Latin America, and I do it in order to see to show students how a very notion of politics, because of course you know, and I would say you know here in the United States, the very notion of populism has a negative connotation. That's the way how most students approach the question of populism. So they see, well, you know, what's wrong with, you know, Latin America? It's the way to, you know, exoticize Latin America, right? The United States was supposedly all about, you know, democracy. And, you know, let me, let me, and then they actually, you know, see the case of, you know, Latin America as the representation of anti, you know, democracy, i.e. populist, you know, politics. So sometimes what I do is to show students how that notion of, you know, middle classness shaped the way how they see Latin America. And then I you know see how you know, uh, at the core of populist politics but indeed in you know, a question of what it meant to you know live in a democratic society. So I do it you know through primary sources, interviews, examples with certain you know problematization. I have other examples for you know cold war or more recently to you know to see how the very notion of you know middle class is so central to a neoliberal society and what we may call you know, the depolitization of you know, social relations, how the middle class becomes you know, the proper you know, definition of what you know, people should actually do, the ideal of a, a society. So that's the way I integrate some of these um, discussions into my teaching.
1: We've been speaking today with Ricardo Lopez Pedreros about the volume. He co-edited with Mario Barbosa Cruz and Claudia Stern the middle classes in latin america subjectivities practices and genealogies ricardo thanks so much for your time
2: no thank you very much in you know, for you know, this, this opportunity and i certainly hope that you know uh, there are a lot of people you know read for you know for this book and i want again and to thank all the contributors to the book and my co-editors because I, I do think that you know a, a collective work make make a difference